Well, hello there, and welcome to Food Lab Talk. I'm your host, Michael Bucker. One of our big aspirations is to see how we can enable the planet to feed and nourish a projected 10 billion people by 2050, and to do it in sustainable, inclusive, efficient, nutritious, and healthy ways. My guest this week believes that sustainable agriculture, the practice of ethically farming seafood, could be one of our biggest ways to achieve that. Jennifer is a seasoned consultant, speaker, and strategist. She's the author of best-selling publications that include the Seed Chain cookbooks. She's been recognized numerous times by the James Beard Foundation and the International Association of Culinary Professionals as one of the United States' top culinary consultants, communicators, teachers, and changemakers. Jennifer also sits on the board of numerous ocean advocacy organizations, including Alexander Cousteau's Oceans 2050, the Marine Mammal Center, and more. Jennifer, that is quite some CV. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's nice to talk to you today. So to get things started, would you mind sharing a little bit more about your personal and professional background with the audience? And maybe what led you to sustainable agriculture in particular? Well, I feel like all of us have this winding road. None of us predict that we're going to get where we are, certainly not when you're 25 years into a career. I came from a family that had a ranch in Colorado, third generation family ranchers. And I always say I fell in love with two fish in my life. And the first one was the trout that my grandfather caught in the creeks of Colorado near his ranch. And that trout was so connected to the ecosystem and the food system that he was really building. And as I went through my career, um, I always sort of had one foot on the ranch and understood the beautiful way in which these foods were reared and the care that was really given to them. And so to me, it really made a lot of sense when I started to hear about what the issues were on our ocean stocks. I mean, the ocean is 90% fish to or over capacity. And then this crazy negative narrative around aquaculture. And I thought to myself, but we farm everything else in our food system. And I remembered all of these great memories that I had from my grandfather and the way in which he reared the animals that he raised, and then thinking about the people that I met that were on the water that gave that same care. So while I didn't expect to land in responsible aquaculture and really more responsible blue foods, how we manage foods from both freshwater and from marine-based waters, both wild capture as well as aquaculture, what I realized was that the planet is 71% water, that we were not going to be able to feed the planet on 29%, which is the land, and that there were these incredible opportunities to align protection with production when it came to our water food resources in the same way that my grandfather did on his ranch. Got it. Two interesting follow-up questions. Sustainable agriculture or blue foods? Why do you prefer the term blue foods? Because at this point, while the UN and the FAO have said that aquaculture is the most important protein production, lowest carbon footprint that we will have in the future, it's still going to be part of the contribution that wild capture fisheries that are well managed, of course, freshwater fisheries are well managed. There will still be wild stocks 
in with our aquaculture to create what will be our foods from water system. And many of those of us that are in this ecosystem call it a blue food system. Stanford University and the University of Stockholm have what they call the blue food assessment. And they're doing the heavy lifting around the science. There are over 200 scientists worldwide that are putting together essentially the scientific foundation to show that this scalable food system is possible. So it will be both of those. It's not just going to be on the aquaculture side. Got it. And then the second one is you talked about the trout with your grandfather. Tell me a little bit more about ultimately how you became a communicator or a storyteller, or maybe if you would use it that way, an activist. So what led you from ultimately seeing the links and developing your interest to the role you now fulfill? I mean, such a great question. I, I think my family would say to you, wow, she could have, you know, sold many different things, been an activist for many different things. I was a performer. Most people don't know. When I was a kid, I was a singer and did all sorts of uh, performances and shows all the way through till I went to college. There's a great kind of story about the fact that Glee, the show Glee and the rivalry that Ryan Murphy had from his show choir at North Central High School in Indianapolis. The Ambassadors was the show choir I was in, and we were the arch rivals that built what was then the basis for the show Glee. So I probably could have done just about anything in terms of communication. But for me, um, I started off after graduating from college, I had a cookie business. And then the cookies turned into a home cooking school in the day when people used to come and do avocational cooking classes. That was James Beard nominated. Um, that led to a cooking show and also a radio show. And so it was about culinary and bringing to the table real sustainable solutions, not so much on the environmental side, but before we had the Rachel Rays of the world, my series was called Kitchen Coach. And that ultimately evolved into a phone call from my agent saying, we're going to bring to market the most sustainable salmon in the world. And we think you're the one to do it. And I think at first they probably thought because of my grocery store contracts and endorsements that they probably thought, oh, I could be this great front of the camera person. But I ended up building out the entire strategic development for that one company almost 15 years ago. And then from there, we changed the way in which with that one project, the way in which Seafood Watch and Fair Trade and the Aquaculture Stewardship Council were assessing aquaculture. And that really led to where we are today. Got it. What gets you out of bed every day as you are trying to make an impact in the blue food system? Because I think if I can recap it, when you did TV shows in the past, there was a clear beginning and the end, and there was ultimately a measure of success. But what you're doing now, it's almost like, how do you motivate yourself when it's so hard to ultimately see both the link between what you do and ultimately the time frame it's going to take to make impact? I mean, that is a fantastic question because I always say like when I'm at the Marine Mammal Center, one of the things that happens when we rescue the animals is we bring them in and most of them are pups and they don't know how to eat. And so we have to do this feeding method where we make fish milkshakes. We kind of grind everything up and then they get tube fed these fish milkshakes and I clean the kitchen. I love going in and keeping for all of the volunteers, all of the veterinary team, keeping the kitchen 
completely clean and organized for them. And it has a beginning, a middle and an end, right? There's nothing more satisfying than sort of leaving it all spit shined at the end of a shift. This work is quite different, as you can imagine. And I think that there are a couple of things. One is I know for sure that our consumptive entitlement, particularly in the Western world, of wild ocean resources cannot continue in the future. We will eat up the entire bowl of popcorn, I say. You never eat a couple of pieces of popcorn. You always eat the whole bowl. And when people get stressed, um, particularly when you look at communities now that are under these significant effects of climate change, there is coastal migration, and they will look to what I believe is the greatest food bank in the world, which is our water, our ocean. You can still go out and fish for your dinner, right? The waters of the world have been serving us for our food system for thousands of years. And in fact, 3 billion people on the planet rely on foods from water as their only source of nutrients every day. I mean, in the early days with Verlasso salmon, I used to have to do all the cooking, you know, little demos at the grocery stores. And people would be like, eh, farmed fish. I would never would eat a farmed fish. In fact, there's a bumper sticker in Alaska that says, friends don't let friends eat farmed fish. And I knew when they were spitting it out, I was thinking to myself, there is no way that this can continue. No one ever asks if their ribeye is wild caught. No one ever eats a hamburger when they order it and asks, is it wild or farm? So in my mind, it was easy. They could keep spitting it out in front of me all day long. And that year, that first year, I served over 18,000 bites in different demos and grocery stores throughout the year, the majority of which got spit out. But I thought I was so sure, Michael, I was so sure about this and that this was the answer that that kept me going. And I know now, especially with all of the the statistics and, and the things that are now coming in about the importance of responsible, sustainable aquaculture and the role of water for our food system that while it's hard, it's an honor to be part of that journey because I know that we're bringing the communication into rooms that haven't thought about it and we're really changing the narrative in small ways and then, and then potentially big ways like with what we're doing with the docu-series. I'm going to use that as an intro to our next section. So before we dive into diets, Jennifer, can you talk a little bit more about your bigger picture work and your definition and understanding of a food system? So I feel really lucky because I um, work with best-in-class water farmers and also on the advocacy and policy side. So that's everything from believing in the fair trade model, seeing the impact that it made on coffee and chocolate, and working with Paul Rice and the team to build out a program that could have the same impact around standards for aquaculture. So there's that piece. I also get the chance to work with best-in-class water farmers as a consultant to show them hopefully a path to market where their story can be told. I think that we have to tell the story of this farmer on water and have that reverence like we do the farmer on land. And when we create that connection to that sort of vision that we have of the land farm to the water farmer, then we can really make a big impact. And so I, I feel very strongly about that. 
When I define a food system, obviously, there are a lot of us that look at it and think about the fact that we've globalized our food system. It's likely unrealistic and unsustainable to have the globalization of a food system and the impacts that that has made certainly on local communities and the impact that it has made on all sorts of things, even, for example, like carbon footprint, transportation and all of that. So for me, I feel like it's a, it's a puzzle. Our food system is a complicated puzzle that's going to take all solutions in order to be able to grow and sustain us in the future. So if I'm looking at that complicated puzzle, there are going to be ingredients that come from far away. Can we do a better job at where they come from because we have such a connection to local economies in terms of that globalization? Yes, we can. We can certainly do more um, shipping by water, for example. We can stop the dependency on air travel, on fresh goods, that sort of thing. So we can, we can work. The frozen is the new fresh is a really important concept to me. And we have best-in-class technology, as you know, in all different parts of our foods to be able to do that. But I also think that we have to build out a more robust food system where we are really enabling and empowering local communities to be able to both protect and produce foods locally. And so that for me and my work has to do with the fact that in blue foods, the majority of the foods that come from water are coming from near shore local communities and fresh water, not the deep ocean, which we talk about when we talk about slavery, when we talk about issues in the deep ocean meeting the High Seas Treaty from the UN. Those are not the bulk. Only 2% of our protein comes from those sources. So we can easily regulate that. I feel like we can easily create food systems that include both land and sea, nourishing from both land and sea with localized food systems and then a way in which that we can supplement it so we're also helping build economies, but not at the expense of getting nutritious foods to communities. And that's been one of the issues. There's a blue food assessment paper that talks about this, that we've always valued the export of these goods within a community more than we have valued the nutrition that they bring to the community itself. So if blue food is really going to have the greatest impact that it can be, we also have to value it staying in those communities to feed people. This podcast series is about change makers and change leaders in the food system space. And... What you're describing sounds so quote unquote easy because you have a good list of all the things that you have done are working on. And at the same time, I know that it's really, really hard. And what stuck with me, what you said earlier, that you are providing 18,000 consumers in grocery stores with taste bites and they spit it out. Why did you keep going? So is it because you're so competitive, you're a salesperson and, you know, each no is just the beginning of a new conversation? Is that what is part of the magic of why you're such an effective change maker? I'm not. I'm actually, I say I'm sort of, you know, driven on the outside, but very soft and very, very sensitive on the inside. So those experiences, the experiences when I get challenged, I have to be able to come home and sort of cocoon in. And luckily I have an incredible family and an amazingly supportive husband, and I'm able to kind of heal and go back out in the world. It's not easy for me. So I would say, no, I, I have to also learn that I have to have time to be able to think and recover because it is not inherently natural to my personality. So there's, there's that. But what I will say is if I can overcome that, it shows you how important I think it is. 
And I've been really lucky. I have been on this journey with people like you, with David E. Kelly and Andrew Zimmerman, and a lot of people that have trusted me. And I take that very seriously. So while I am persuasive, as you know, and I can get out there and I feel like probably one of the greatest skills I have is as a communicator, being in front of people and being able to be succinct about a message, I have to use that carefully and wisely. So I say to my family, I have to be careful where I sprinkle the fairy dust because you can get it to work and sometimes it can work against you. And so it's really trying to make sure that the work that I'm doing is is very calculated and thoughtful and also that I'm listening because so much of this is that I feel like the longer I'm in this, the less I feel like I know. That maybe is part of the insecurity piece, but it's also really being careful and thoughtful and right setting this because like working with Jim Leap from the Blue Food Assessment, I think it's being humble enough to say, take this speech, take this science, take what we're saying, analyze it, break it all up and make sure that what we're doing is correct. Because we're really fed by blue, particularly the NGO that I helped found is the communication arm for all of this. It's never been done before. Yeah, I appreciate your openness about the impact change making has on you. And ultimately, how you have to create time and space for yourself to heal because it's not easy. And I think that is a story that quite often is not spoken about because it's almost like we're just magical change makers and it just happens and we just take all blows that we get. Whereas in reality, we are living creatures as well that require love and regeneration time. So thank you for sharing that. Absolutely. I think it's something that I feel is a surprise a lot of times for people. I'm, I am classically a highly sensitive person. I have to be careful about the media I bring in. And certainly with all of the climate news, you know, we filmed in Hawaii, like even what's going on in Maui. And, you know, I think a lot of people feel helpless in these situations. But I find that like I come in, I have that quiet time, I take that deep breath, and then I'm able to go fight another day. I think one of the hardest things has been the fundraising piece because I'm not used to asking for help. And so that part, I'm used to sort of figuring out the solutions, driving that direction, bringing along people on the journey. But the reality of this process of doing the docu-series, getting the funding for the impact campaign, Michael, has been very hard because there's something just amazingly built about with people that have NGOs that are just fundraisers by heart. And that, I think, is a very different nature and a different personality. And so I'm only just learning that because I know what I'm doing is important. So I'm able to do it, but it's not easy. Hurt. And I actually believe that in order to affect change, it requires a network. And then you get to the diversity of the players in the network. You might be an amazing communicator. Somebody else might just be born to ask others for money. It is. I definitely, I have an amazing partner, Jill Kaufman Johnson, and she comes out of the grant and fundraising space. And so she's navigating all those halls. It's definitely different personalities that all come to make the whole, for sure. <laughs> all right. Let's talk a little bit more about shifting diets, Jennifer. So you've shared already that aquaculture has a huge potential to sustainably feed and nourish the global population. And then we can drive demand for sustainable seafood by improving food literacy around sustainable seafood as well. Just a couple of starting questions for you. So you know that I have always talked about we need to shift to a more balanced plant-forward diet. And you've corrected me multiple times and said, from there is more to the story. So how do you 
ultimately show up in these broader conversations where specifically, I think, in the West, there tends to be more focus these days on a sustainable plant-forward diet then ultimately there is so much more to the story, including the shift to more sustainable blue foods. Well, I mean, I think the good news is that if someone wants to shift to a more plant-forward diet, there are sustainable ways in which we can do that with blue foods because in aquaculture, seaweed is the number one produced aquaculture-raised ingredient in the world. And the majority of those farms that are out there are owned by women. And they're really changing coastal communities that maybe have been fished out by, frankly, traditional male-dominated fishermen, the fishing industry. So I think the good news is, is that we can have that conversation. I think you and I both know that there's there's so many places where that we have in common versus the ones that sort of divide us. I think it's very important, frankly, in a plant-forward diet to have the conversation about bivalves, that if nothing else, rather than depending all on food from land, which we know actually is, is changing so dramatically, I can put bivalves, mussels, and oysters, and and then seaweeds into a multi-trophic system close to coast and be able to feed an entire community. So for me, again, it's about balance. I would love for us to be raising a generation of children that got used to eating oysters, that got used to eating seaweeds, because we know we have to build a palate for those things. And we need to start at the very, very beginning of when they're starting to be able to you know, enjoy certain types of foods. And, and then I, what I really believe is that in that way, we will be able to eat with abundance and with joy which I think is really important, even in a food system that's going to be taxed by the effects of climate change, that there's still a possibility to have that. And then those other ingredients will be looked at as being for special occasions, which they really they really should be, those ingredients that are maybe, um, maybe have a little bit higher carbon footprint and higher input. So for me, it's one, we have to get kids to try it. There's a um, program in Maine in the school system where they're bringing seaweed into the schools and they're putting them in the school lunch program, for example. And the statistics are that we will raise more seaweed than potatoes in the United States by 2040. And that we're going to be starting to put it into a number of other types of ingredients. It will be a component of the foods that we eat, whether it's the tomato sauce you love, or it's the packaging like what Notpla is doing around consumer packaging, or if there is less beef production, but we still have some animal production, which we think we probably would, that then we can put it into feed that's going to lower methane rates. So the way I look at it is that, again, it's, it's bringing all of the foods to the table showing what the ecosystem benefits are, because there is no doubt that an oyster filters more than 50% of the water that goes through it and that it can clean and be able to regenerate ecosystems. So if you look at how these foods, how these ingredients can not only feed us, but return environments to abundance, and that there is indigenous wisdom that can be put around how we manage these waters that is so important. You know, the thousands of years of wisdom that can then take us into the future. I believe that there's in a plant forward conversation that what will end up happening is like the pendulum sways one way and then the other, there'll be a balance in the middle where we will understand the importance of all of these ingredients to feed, you know, the numerous communities and heritage and everything that surrounds us. I'm going to ask you a, follow, a binary follow-up question, Jennifer. So supply or demand, what is, from your perspective, the biggest barrier or the biggest accelerator to get more people to eat more blue foods again? 
I mean, it is it is complex because if you think about the issues, let's just talk about seaweed, for example. If I'm speaking with a large food entity, they'll say, well, I can't start putting a seaweed puree into a chocolate bar, which we know can happen. They can use it as a supplemental ingredient to some of the fats and cocoa and things because of the umami, because of the flavor profile um, of a dull seaweed, for example. So we know we can do it. What the team at Mars told me was that the barrier is supply that the system is not set up yet, that the farms, there isn't enough scale yet to be able to put a dent into the huge mammoth of the Mars production. If I talk to Sodexo, it's the same way. Well, how are we going to bring these into this larger ecosystem when there's so little supply? I would agree But I would also say that the only way to change that, and we've seen it where companies like Cargill start to invest in sustainable solutions like we're seeing with CellBase, and then that way they can get a proof point for it to then be able to invest more in it. So I think there's that. I also think, though, again, believing in the power of the people, that there are seaweed companies like Atlantic Sea Farms, whom you have featured in and tried to help support, that need help selling their items. And if we're not buying them, then they're not going to be able to continue to get investment and be able to continue to build out infrastructure. So we sure as heck better have an entire pantry filled with these items and be supporting the ones that are those early adopters, and that that way they can come back to investors and show that it's worth that investment because there is market demand. So you know this, you probably knew what my answer was going to be. But my reality is like, we need to find a great way to put oysters in a jar and sell more frozen into Kroger in order to build demand. Supply could be there if the government would give more licenses and protect more oyster farmers in our coastal communities. And we need an education campaign that tells coastal landowners, wealthy coastal homeowners, that they shouldn't be fighting the seaweed farmer or the oyster farmer off their off their coastline just because they don't want to see them. We are in, in the United States, particularly in a dire situation around aquaculture. And that's what makes the Seafood Act with EDF so important because we have to start supporting this food system in the United States because we import more than 65% of our fish and seafood, 90% depending on who you're talking to. So it can't be a sustainable system if we don't start to understand its importance and value. I mean, even just the United States alone. So Jennifer, quite often people say, you know, changing diets is something that the wealthier individuals can easily do, but the general population don't have the funds for all of this. So do you believe that the shift to blue foods should start with the wealthier part of the population first and then trickle down, or is it just a false narrative and it starts with anybody can do because we ate seafood for centuries? I think the most important thing to recognize is that the rest of the world is sort of already on this um, bandwagon. So you've got seaweed villages that women are building and places like India that are starting to be utilized for their food systems as well as for sale. So there are there are important blue food systems that are feeding communities, Africa with tilapia. I mean, we're teaching women on Lake Victoria how to grow tilapia, which is a heritage fish, which is now feeding nine, 10 villages near Lake Victoria. Victoria. So it's already happening at scale in a way that is contributive. I would say salmon aquaculture, 
you know, it's likely is going to be expensive. This is, I mean, salmon is, you know, when you look at a Norwegian salmon, it's a premium price. Those prices likely with all of the inputs are not going to go down. But what I would say is like any food system, there are opportunities throughout, you know, all the ingredients that we offer where there will be some that will be available to the masses. There'll be some that are going to be more expensive, that are going to be more premium products. In the United States, the key is having more aquaculture. If we're importing more fish and seafood than we actually produce, then that's going to be more expensive because it has so much transportation on it, so much air travel on it. So we really all need to get behind the advocacy, the policy, the understanding, get away from the NIMBY of knowing what it's going to take to build our own blue food system that does not just rely on wild stocks and specifically really changes the narrative that we we can't have aquaculture because friends don't let friends eat farmed fish. So we have to build something where fishers and farmers come together in order to build an accessible, nutritive blue food system for all. Last week, I spoke with Greg Drescher from the Culinary Institute of America about the central role that chefs play in driving culinary strategy to shift diets. So my belief is that probably chefs play an incredible role as well in shifting towards more blue food diets. But is there a next category of change makers or change influencers that you believe we should think about as well as we talk about shifting diets? I mean, I think it's interesting. We have the endorsement of the Independent Restaurant Coalition, 11 million strong, that are going to activate community toolkits and, and community events around the premiere of the series. And in theory right now, put blue dots on their menus for those responsibly sourced items. So I am excited about what the food service community can do. But I do feel like Let's just talk about North America. The average American doesn't know who the chef is when they're going to Chipotle, you know, and the majority of the way in which they eat, they don't know their chefs and they're not, I mean, Food Network and some of these other ways of activating are a very small percentage of our population that, you know, are watching these shows. And so I, I used to believe in that, the power of entertainment, the power of the chef. Jose Andres just did a big campaign with Good Meats and that's the cell-based chicken. And I didn't even know. And Jose is in our series. So it sort of gives you the idea of like, there's a lot going on. People are consuming media in a lot of different ways, both on the plate through to YouTube, as you know. I mean, everything shifts and changes all the time. I think that this is a really complicated answer. I think that we know, and I've talked to you about this before, the search engines are very important because people are out there searching for information. How we utilize that for good is very important. When you ask ChatGPT at this point what a blue food is, it goes down the blueberry path. So we have to start to make sure that information is out there, that we are sophisticated in the way in which we're reaching consumers where they are and how they're getting information. And I think that I would say, well, I would hope to have the budget to be able to use YouTuber influencers and others that can really help build this movement. I'm going to have to do it on their goodwill. Most likely, the goodwill of those that have foundations that will help me. But to really create scale, it's going to have to be sort of, you know, the, all the parts that create the sum. And I don't know that we know yet how the best way is to change consumptive behavior, because to be honest with you, Michael, it hasn't been done. Consumptive behavior really has not changed. We keep doing the same things. So what we said, our connected market tool is being developed by the same team uh, that did the share the meal 
app. It's AJ and Smart is the group. They won the app of the year. They did that for the Nobel Peace Prize winning laureate. They've done apps for Lego and Gucci and a number of others. And we've been really lucky that AJ and Smart has done a lot of their work pro bono for our NGO. And we're hoping to come out with something that will get used and maybe figure out a way to be able to connect in that way. Thank you so much for joining us on Food Lab Talk today. It's been wonderful hearing from you, having the conversation. And I'm sure you're going to continue to be a great inspiration for many. I'm so appreciative of you having me to bring this topic to the Google Food Lab and to be able to continue on this journey with you. It's been an inspiration. So thank you. Reflecting on this week's interview, a few things that stood out to me. First, people can be powerful but it's a voter making their voice heard on an issue or an actor eating a fish tacker on television, never underestimate the power of people with a passion for change. This reminded me of my conversation with James Canoff in season one. Anyone can be a change maker. All you need to do is to dream big, start small and move fast. Second, it is important to spotlight those who are getting it right. Creating change can sometimes feel like two steps forward and one step back. Somewhere out there, someone is gaining traction. Shine a light on those best-in-class projects and ideas so that they can scale. And last, meet people where they are. Jennifer talked about media consumption and ensuring information about blue food reaches people where they are seeking that information through search, YouTube, or even scripted television. To truly connect with your audience, you need to understand what they're looking for and where they're looking, so you can begin to see change. For more information about Fed by Blue, including the initiatives and tools mentioned on today's episode, be sure to check out the show notes. Thank you for joining us for this episode. If you liked what you heard, subscribe to the podcast at foodlabtalk.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. As we close, I invite you to pursue your own bold vision and take whatever action you can take toward a better food system. See you next time.